1: Good morning! It is Monday, November 28th, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Mythe, for Dave Brown. Let's hit those horns and go! Coming up on the show today, Michelle McQuigg from the Canadian Press reflects on the latest news, making headlines across the nation. The National Education Association of Disabled Students is hosting their State of the Schools tour. Community reporter Elizabeth Moeller fills you in on the details. And finally, my old friend Jim Crisco tells you all about the newly proposed accessibility legislation in Saskatchewan. But let's begin with our top news of the day. The Emergencies Act inquiry has moved to the next stage of the process after its public hearing saw numerous officials, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, testify. Brenda Molina
2: on the use of the Emergencies Act, including protests as well as their limits, while an afternoon session will explore financial governance, policing and intelligence. The policy phase follows six weeks of public hearings in downtown Ottawa, culminating in Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's testimony on Friday. Trudeau invoked the act on February 14th after thousands of protesters associated with the Freedom Convoy blockaded downtown Ottawa and key border crossings. Brenda Molina-Navidad, the Canadian Press.
1: Canada has announced a new Indo-Pacific strategy with $2.5 billion set aside to help strengthen ties in the region. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie says that the time is right for this strategy.
3: What you're seeing today is a reorientation of our foreign policy we haven't seen in a long time. Why? Because there's a generational global shift happening.
1: Jolie says that countries want more Canadian involvement in the region.
3: The current moment demands more of Canada. The region is now looking for us to step up our game. They want Canada at the table to build a better future for citizens on both sides of the Pacific.
1: Minister of Export Promotion and International Trade Mary Ng says that the strategy will encompass all areas of concerns for Canadians.
4: But what this means is that every issue that matters to Canadian, our economy, our good middle class jobs, our democratic values, our national security and our human rights, is going to be shaped by our relationship with the Indo-Pacific, which is why this strategy is just so important.
1: The strategy includes half a billion dollars for military investments, including new naval deployments and joint military training with regional partners. Russian airstrikes continue to impact Ukraine's frail energy infrastructure. Karen Chamas has this report.
5: Cancer surgeon Dr. Ole Duda was in the middle of a complicated, dangerous surgery at a hospital in Lviv, Ukraine, when he heard explosions nearby. Moments later, the lights went out. Duda had to carry on with only a headlamp for light. Three minutes later, the lights came back. After the hospital generator kicked in, Duda told the AP those fateful minutes could have cost the patient his life. Russia's airstrikes have disrupted a healthcare system which has already suffered from years of corruption and mismanagement, as well as strain from the pandemic and nine months of war. I'm Karen Chamas.
1: As the holiday season approaches, donations to food banks are set to rise. But experts say that the donations don't solve the problem. Nicole Reese shares a story.
3: Researchers say donating to food banks doesn't address the root causes of hunger. University of Calgary Professor Emeritus Lynn McIntyre says people go hungry because they can't afford food, which indicates a need for systemic changes, including a basic income program. Food banks first opened in Canada in the early 1980s and were supposed to be a temporary support amid a growing recession. McIntyre says continued government investment into food banks signals that those in power aren't prepared to tackle the root causes of hunger, which include adequate incomes. Nicole Reese, the Canadian Press.
1: China is easing COVID restrictions after demonstrations erupted across the country. Here's Jennifer
6: King with more. Chinese authorities eased antivirus rules in some areas but are reaffirming their zero-COVID strategy after crowds in multiple cities held demonstrations, demanding the resignation of China's President Xi Jinping. A deadly apartment fire last week raised questions about overzealous virus controls, and the city of Beijing announced it would no longer set up gates to block access to apartment compounds where infections are found. Police used pepper spray against protesters in Shanghai and struggled to suppress demonstrations in other cities. The protests are the most widespread display of opposition to the ruling Communist Party in decades. Some protesters called for the party to step down and held up blank pieces of paper to signify resistance against state censorship. The ruling party newspaper People's Daily defended zero COVID, saying it has withstood the test of practice. I'm Jennifer King. And finally,
1: we go to a lighter story that will tie into our Daily Poll question. The Victoria-style home featured in the 80s cult classic The Goonies is up for sale. Located in Astoria, Oregon, it is on the market for $1.7 million and overlooks the Columbia River. The potential downside of owning this home? Well, dealing with the droves of fans who visit the site every year due to its role in the movie. After the 30th anniversary of the movie in 2015, there were up to 1,500 visitors a day at the site. The overwhelming attraction caused the owner to put it up a no trespassing sign and for the city to restrict parking in the area. The owner reopened the home in August to let fans relive that nostalgia. The main reason for the owner selling this piece of movie history, it's her primary home and she wants a little less traffic around the home. Very understandable. And fun fact, Astoria is also the backdrop for one of my favorite movies of all time, the... King, uh, the cult classic with Arnold Schwarzenegger, Kindergarten Kindergarten Cop. So I'm going to ask this uh, with our poll question. It's going to tie into this. But first, let's look at the results from Friday's poll. So we asked you, do you plan on taking advantage of some deals on Black Friday? 38% of you said yes. 50% of you said no. And 12% were undecided. Now we have some responses to share as well. James from Twitter said, I did. Not everyone realizes that a majority of the retail's Advertise Black Friday sales for two to three weeks. This will be the same when Boxing Day sales come up. That's a very good point, James. And we also had from Marcus, who tweeted about his purchase and shared some concerns he's already experiencing. He says, Yep, we did. We purchased a 65-inch TLC 4K Roku TV from hashtag Walmart. Unfortunately, I am having trouble finding any accessibility menus in the settings, hoping to figure out how to turn the screen reader on. From what I've seen, it's called Audio Guide on the TCL TVs built with Roku. So now we ask you today's question. Would you live in a home that's been made famous from a movie? If you say yes, you know, be sure to leave a comment and let us know what house you would choose. I think it would be very specific. I I wouldn't just want to live in any home. I think for me, some of the ones that I think about is like if I had to live in a movie home, I I think Home Alone's home in uh in Illinois, that one is such a beautiful red bick Georgian style home. I think I would I would love to live in that one. But uh you know what? Why don't we find out what Mike Ross has to say? Well, let's welcome in in now. Good morning,
7: Mike. Good morning, Alex. Can I, can I just say one thing about those Black Friday sales Absolutely. last week? I bought, I, I said I was going to buy a new tablet. I bought a new tablet. Very, really excited. Got a really good deal yeah. on it. However, I didn't realize there's a, a new generation of plugs mm. for these tablets. And it doesn't come, the, the tablet comes with your power cord, but not with the plug. So now I had to go back and order a separate plug so that I can actually use this tablet. That was kind of disappointing. There's a whole new product line that I wasn't aware of. And so now I got to make extra purchases. So the money I spent on the tablet wasn't enough. They need to they need to get an extra 32 bucks out of it. Well that that's
1: where those sales come from, Mike. You're like, "Oh, 30 bucks." So, yep. oh, yeah, I saved that. Yeah. Nope.
7: <laughs> uh, where would I want to live? I have two places, okay. both from the same movie franchise. Mm. So, they're both from the Home Alone franchise. So, I'd love to uh, the, to go to the Home Alone house. It, it's in the suburb of Chicago and Last, I think it was a couple of years ago. I don't know if it's still the case, but a couple of years ago, it was listed on Airbnb. You could actually go and stay in the Home Alone house. So I think that would be pretty cool to stay in the house where they filmed Home Alone. The other thing, the other place that I liked in Home Alone 2 was that two-story hotel room they stayed at, Mm. at the Plaza Hotel. I mean, if you stay in a two-story hotel room with this grand staircase in it, that, I got to say, that would be a pretty luxurious uh, place to uh, to vacation, at least, if not live. So yeah. I'm going to go with a couple of Home Alone destinations.
1: Well, and, and the beauty of doing the two-floor two, uh, two floor, um, apartment is the fact that you're not going to get the same level of traffic. I mean, there's going to be security. There's going to be door people. They're going to be stopping uh, fans and and uh, people who want to come and check it out from, from visiting, unlike— what we uh, we saw from that uh, article with the, yeah. the Goonies home, where people are just showing up in droves and and wanting to see it, and and I think that there's something to playing into a bit of that that attraction to it. But I, I get it at the same point, you know, it's, if it's your primary home, do you really want that many people just coming by all hours of the day, maybe all hours? Well, it's like of the night?
7: Uh, it's like the full house uh, yep. house in San Francisco. Uh, we walked past it. We were in a in a park across the street. And it was just like nonstop traffic, uh, stopping in front of these uh, these this house where these people actually live. Like it's it is their residence, and it was just like oh boy, uh, glad that's not us. Yes. Uh, you know the 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 parade of cars and and of gawkers. No, thank you.
1: Well, and uh, uh, just a, a note to folks at home. I I'd talked with Eliza Rocco about this last week, and she mentioned the Full House house as uh, one of the places that, and it was also. The Twilight home, which would be, you know, very mm. large, back out into some forest, you know, getting to some of the uh, the lovely nature around there. But let's bring in Jeff Ryman to find out what his take is. Jeff, if you had to live in the movie house, A, would you? And B, which one would it be?
7: Yes, I would like to live in a house. Uh, I would love to live in that Home Alone house. Uh massive, um, and it's one of my favorite Christmas movies, so I think that would be kind of special. But also, I, I feel like if I'm going with a TV show, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I mean, that mm-hmm. Bel-Air mansion was massive. Loved that show. Um, and, yeah, it, it's in Bel-Air, so, like, why not? And it's it just, like, just the, the feel of it when you're watching that show it has I think it has a tennis court in the back. They've got that guest house as well, I think, in the later seasons yeah. where uh, Will Smith and, and, and Carlton were, were living in at one point. That house just seemed to have it all. So I think I'd go with the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air house.
1: Very good choices. Another one I thought of was from Ferris Bueller's days off. Not not Ferris Bueller's house, but Cameron's house, that ultra-modern one where you had the beautiful red car and his beautiful glass display area. I, I've... I feel I could get used to ultra-modern, but, uh, you know, why don't we, we throw it to you at home? You, we want to hear from you guys as well. Would you live in a, a house made famous from a movie, and which one would it be? So be sure to vote on our polls at Facebook uh, on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc., and on Twitter at Accessible Media. But for now, let's head back to Mike, who has our national weather update.
7: Thanks, Alex. It is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We begin in St. John's, Newfoundland. This drizzle this morning, getting uh, some rain about 5 to 10 millimeters in total, and it's a high of plus 4. In Halifax, you've got rain changing to showers near the midday, 5 to 10 millimeters of rain there as well. Your temperature falls to plus 4 this afternoon. In Montreal, periods of rain, then clearing skies in the afternoon at a temperature steady near plus three. Ottawa is cloudy today with a chance of some flurries. Your high is minus one. The wind chill this afternoon will be minus six. In Toronto, cloudy skies and a high of plus four. Let's go to Thunder Bay, Ontario next. You got some flurries in the afternoon, maybe some freezing drizzle as well so be careful with that your highest plus two the wind chill is minus eight winnipeg is cloudy with a chance of snow this morning and then sun and clouds this afternoon the high is zero the wind chill is minus eight saskatoon snow and blowing snow five to ten centimeters in total your temperature minus nine this afternoon your wind chill this afternoon minus 19 so bundle up Let's go to Calgary in Alberta. Cloudiness there through the day, some light snow. Got the temperature steady near minus 13 and the wind chill minus 23. In Edmonton, snow ending this morning and a steady temperature around minus 10. Your wind chill is sitting around minus 20. To Yellowknife, light snow ending this morning and clearing skies, but a cold one temperature falling to minus 26 this afternoon the wind chill minus 37 and that means there is risk of frostbite into british columbia vancouver has a mix of sun and clouds today and a high of plus four and victoria a mix of sun and cloud and a high of plus four and that was your ami national weather report from environment canada
1: Thank you very much, Mike. We'll check in with you later on in the show. But coming up next, Michelle McQuig from the Canadian Press reflects on the latest news making headlines across the nation. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown coming to you live on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe, still filling in for Dave. This is my my last day filling in for Dave before he comes back from his well-deserved vacation. So it's going to be nice to have his voice back in this chair. Now, it's Monday, so we always like to try to connect with Michelle McQuigg and find out what's happening in the world of news, I, I believe we do have Michelle now. So why don't we check in with Canadian Press Weekend News Editor Michelle McGregor to find out what are some of the headlines that we missed. Hello, Michelle. How are you doing this morning? Oh, we may not have Michelle right now. So, so we will just... Try to connect up with her and find out some of those top headlines as we we had been covering for many many weeks now that uh, uh, the emergencies act. I'm going okay, and uh, we why don't we bring in Mike Ross here? And you know, Mike, you had talked about before the show uh, or before on the uh, the daily poll about the uh, the Black Friday kind of deals, uh, sales and deals that you were able to take part, and I was able to uh, finally purchase my my new phone. I was very fortunate to do that, but I will say it was a major hassle. Um, I went to a certain big box store, uh, found out that there was something called virtual lineups now, uh, which, oh no. which you can't uh, register online or remotely. You have to be in-store. You have to scan a QR code. And then you have to realize, oh, there's 60 people in front of you waiting to uh, go to the the mobility uh, uh, center to to get assistance. So, needless to say, my my Friday afternoon and evening was uh, pretty filled up, uh, trying to uh, wait in line, find the best uh, location to go and and get the deal done. I did get it done, but uh, I would say it's pr- probably took me about four to five hours in total to to
7: strike in on that deal hopefully your experience wasn't wasn't that bad well listen as i said the the thing that kind of irks me is that uh i drop you know these tablets they're not cheap you're Mm -hmm. talking several hundred dollars same thing with phones you're dropping several hundred dollars And you receive it. I I mean, literally received it the next day. I I was really impressed with how quickly I got it. And I was like, really excited to open it up. I'm like a kid on Christmas morning. And where's the plug? I I see a cord here, but I don't see the actual physical plug. And then I noticed when I looked at, because I've got, the brand of, of of tablet that I bought, I have the same brand of cell phone, so I've got a whole bunch of plugs around here from the different phones I've owned over the years. But it's not a USB plug anymore. Mm-hmm. It's the, I guess that C
1: USB. Is that what they call it? The, yeah, the C I guess USB. Yeah, so.
7: yeah. Yep. At both ends, so I'm looking and I go, wait a minute. This is not like any court I've ever seen before. And that's when I dug in a little bit deeper. So I actually, I'm anxious to hear the response I get. I sent a a message to the company because I I didn't go through a store. I bought it directly from the company. And I've done that twice now. And um, I'm waiting to see what they say back. Basically, my argument was just after dropping hundreds of dollars I understand if you're doing this for environmental reasons, people have a bunch of chargers. But when you're introducing a new generation, a new product, you should ask people. Check off a box if you need a charger. And when I'm dropping hundreds of dollars, just throw a charger in if it's a new generation product. Yeah. I, so we'll see what they say. We'll see what they come back with. Exactly, Mike. Well, thank you for chiming in.
1: Thank you for sharing your experience. Hopefully the folks at home had slightly better and easier experience than we did. But we do now have Michelle McQuigg on the phone, so we'll welcome her in. Good morning, Michelle. How are you doing?
8: Hi, Alex. Bit of a tech day, it seems, but I'm fine,
1: thanks. How are you? I, I'm doing okay. So uh, let's get into it. So you you brought a couple stories. Let's talk about the first one, where there, this comes from New Brunswick, and this is having to deal with the case of police mistakenly informing a family that their 29 year old son was deceased when he was not, in fact, uh, deceased. Yes. Can you kind of fill us in a bit more on these details?
8: For sure. That is the cold Notes version, Alex just gave you. The bottom is the more bad optics for the RCMP, which has not been lacking for negative headlines this year. Uh, what happened in New Brunswick started last year in Moncton when a family got a call in the middle of the night that their son found dead in Moncton of an overdose a 29-year-old. Uh, the mother's name is Donna Price. She's declining to name her son to his privacy since he is still alive. But in essence, Donna Price got a call from the cops in the middle of the night or they came to her garage to notify her of her son's supposed death. Uh, that was very devastating news for her, of course. She took time in the middle of the night by uh, her son's father, her son's brother and sisters. And then in the morning, a little bit later on, she called grandparents and broke the news in all cases everyone came over they were mourning together for about 13 hours or so and then uh, Rice had asked someone she didn't say who to go to her son's home to retrieve some personal effects and get some information that the police required for for death records and whatnot and when they got to their home there was her son safe and sound alive and well uh so this is obviously very uh shocking for everyone a real emotional roller coaster because she's not only she was of course delighted to find that her son was alive but also really upset and shocked by what had happened and she had all kinds of questions for the rcmp as to exactly how this went down and that's where we stand now is trying to get some of those answers
1: yeah so what was your kind of first reaction what stood out to you about this story because for me it's just an initial shock it's like how can this happen
8: well, that, that is the big one. She asked, how did you determine that it was my son who died? And eventually she was able to get a, a, a little bit of a sense. And it sounded like a relatively stashed feature. she was told. And again, the RCMP are not being very forthcoming about this at this moment, so we don't have yet have the full side of the story. But what Donna Price was told is that someone sent an image to a man who had died in Moncton and around the... And a number of officers apparently had it. So that's someone who had struggled with homelessness addiction before. So he it was known to the police, and that was apparently how the the cops arrived at this identification. A lawyer uh, that she has since hired is is arguing that this would not have been the case had the person in question been perhaps a pinstripe suited kind of person or someone who occurred to be better in a more affluent neighborhood. That perhaps there's a double standard at play in terms of identification protocol based on socioeconomic circumstances. So that's really the angle that, uh, that Donna Price is latching onto now that her initial shock has subsided. She has announced that she tends to file a lawsuit against the RCMP for this uh, to try to get some better standards in play for, for identifications and uh, to, to find it a bit more impactful.
1: Yeah, Michelle, uh, we're we're having, unfortunately, you're still dealing with those technical problems. We're having a bit of a, a hard time uh, uh, hearing you, but you know what? We're, we'll let you go for now. Uh, we're going to be following along on this story, I'm sure, as it continues to unfold, as we hear more from the RCMP. But uh, uh, thank you so much, Michelle, for uh, kind of powering through uh, with us this morning, despite <laughs> all the technical issues.
8: My pleasure, Alex. Sorry about all this.
1: Take care. Take care. That is Michelle McQuig, who is the Weekend News Editor with the Canadian Press, who is telling us about a story uh, out of New Brunswick. Coming up next, the National Educational Association of Disabled Students is hosting their State of the School tour. Community reporter Elizabeth Moeller fills you in on the details. But first, here is Canadian Press reporter Emily Jovesky with your Morning Business Minute.
9: Canada's main stock index closed up Friday, with mixed results across sectors. Toronto's S&P TSX index was up about 40 points at 20,384. In New York, the Dow Jones was up 152 points at 34,355. The Nasdaq fell 59 points to 11,226. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index fell 120 points to 28,163. Hong Kong's Hang Seng index fell 249 points to 17,324. And our dollar was trading overseas this morning at 74.46 cents U.S. Canadian banks are set to reveal how they're faring in the lead-up to a possible recession as they report quarterly earnings this week from the Canadian Press Business Desk. I'm Emily Jovesky.
1: Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you live on AMI-tv. It's time to check in with one of our community reporters. Elizabeth Moeller joins us now with news from Toronto, Ontario. Good morning, Elizabeth. How are you doing?
3: Well, nice to meet you and nice to be with you this morning.
1: Exactly. You know, I'm starting my week off right with uh, being able to chat with you. So I'm excited to dive into this a bit. So the National Educational Association of Disabled Students is hosting their State of the Schools tour. So first, can you tell me a bit about what needs is and what this
3: tour entails? Absolutely, so NEEDS is a cross-disability organization, cross-Canada organization, that supports students with disabilities to attend post-secondary and get into employment. NEEDS does this by providing financial support. We have a range of scholarships and awards. We have a range of events and webinars that we do through our virtual access for all project. And as well, we have a resilience program, as well as breaking it down, which is an employee and employer resource on our needs website. So really, our goal is to enhance the experience of post-secondary students with disabilities. So now just flipping to the tour. So this is called the state of the schools tour. And really, what are we trying to find out? We're trying to find out the state of the schools in this Kind of reckoning coming out of COVID. We're still very much in COVID, but we're coming back to in person. So, what we're doing is we're wanting to hear from students on the ground. What do you need to be successful? What's working? What is not working? What would reimagining and re envisioning an inclusive education look like? as we come back to in-person learning. So we had our first two stops on the tour last week. I should say that every single stop will be in-person and virtual. So we're gonna have hybrid for folks that don't feel safe coming out in person. So our first stop was last Wednesday in St. John's, Newfoundland. Thanks to the folks there really welcomed us. And our second stop was in Halifax, Nova Scotia. What did we hear from students? Well, we, we heard a lot about concerns around coming back in person for students that are immune compromised. We heard how well online learning worked for some students. I think there's this, this misunderstanding that online is somehow bad and in-person is good. And really what we heard last week was students disrupting that notion and saying, hey, we need to really think critically about what worked really well during COVID and keep that. So I'll pause there and let you throw some more <laughs> questions my way.
1: Well, no, it's, it's a ton of great information. I mean, you're you're knocking my questions off for me, so you're making my job easy. I could just sit <laughs> back and relax. <laughs> and
3: relax. Excellent.
1: Uh, now, so you heard from students; they're giving this kind of uh, uh, this information that's inside, and you're, as you said, you're kind of disrupting that notion that, oh, okay, well, in in class is always better than than remote and and online. But why is it important to have? these student-led voices and in uh, these types of situations where it's you're making sure that they are being able to advocate for what they need.
3: Yeah, you've raised a really excellent question. And it really comes down to nothing about us without us, right? It's the old disability saying, but it's so powerful. And often what we've heard from students, not just on this tour, but in our webinars over the past two and a half years, is that service providers and other folks without disabilities are speaking for these students and making decisions on their behalf. And our students very clearly last week wanted to be heard, wanted to have a voice. Another really big concern that came up was, accommodations look one way in an undergrad program, but are very different in a graduate or, or a professional program. And so really starting to think about how can we support students who maybe need non-traditional or non-conventional accommodations, whether that's attendance services to go to a conference, whether that's funding to assist with publications, whether that's extra time. We all know some of us need extra time, but that's a little bit more challenging to navigate in grad school.
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting point because they're two very different streams, right? Because, you Absolutely. know, undergraduate, it's a bit more directive. It's a bit more of a, a structure, whereas in graduate programs, it's more one-on-one. It's very uh, need-specific for whatever the the program that they're in. And what are some of the the key takeaways that you've been finding so far from from this tour?
3: Yeah, I think one big key takeaway is the need for flexibility. So the need for programs to be flexible in how they support students and that every student has unique needs, the need for faculty and instructors and teaching assistants to be flexible. So are are classes able to be recorded if folks need it? Or, you know, are we able to continue with hybrid? Or if in-person is required, what safety implementations are going to be in place for people that need them? I think another big takeaway is that students want and need to be heard. So this comes down to making sure that there's adequate funding to support graduate students with disabilities to pursue what it is they want to pursue. It means making sure people in professional programs have the accommodations they need to be successful, not only in their program, but as they take those entrance exams like we know are very common in law or occupational therapy or medicine. And I think another really important takeaway is that students are feeling financial pressure, right? We know that for all students, But this is even more amplified and magnified for students with disabilities who, because they take longer, they're paying an increase in tuition because sometimes they need accommodations. They're paying out of pocket for assessments and technology, et cetera. We also know that often students, if they're not diagnosed officially with a disability, can't access disability-specific funds. So financial pressures were a huge takeaway and a huge learning that we heard.
1: And so you mentioned you've already done two stops on this tour. Where's the next stop and where can people go to find out more information?
3: Okay, so next stop, it's a while away, but it's January 27th in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And if you want to know more, you can go to www.neads.ca. And keep in mind that in addition to our tour stops, we have monthly webinars that cover a range of topics, such as mentorship, transitions, and navigating grad school with a disability.
1: That's great. And we'll be sure to put that information up on our blog, AMI.ca slash now. You also wanted to talk about the David C. Onley Awards. So uh, this Saturday was the deadline for the awards. Like, What angles of leadership is this award really highlighting? Because it's about leadership in accessibility.
3: Yeah, so David Sionley, I didn't know this until I started preparing for the show today, was the 28th Lieutenant Governor. And I hope I said that right, because I know <laughs> there's Lieutenant and Lieutenant, yep. depending on where you're, where you're hailing from. Uh, so David Sionley, we know that David was a champion of accessibility. I actually was fortunate enough to meet David uh, a number of years ago at a Millennium Scholarship Conference. But this really highlights four pillars of leadership. The first is employee and employment. So somebody that's working in a workplace or volunteering and really going beyond just the required AODA standards, to make the workplace accessible then we have role models so this could be an individual doesn't have to be associated with a specific workplace who's really gone above and beyond in their volunteer efforts to make Ontario more accessible then we have honor roll so that's for an organization that's again going above those compliance guidelines and we have youth so youth is ages 16 to 24 any youth in Ontario that's really going above and beyond their things to note you have to be an Ontario resident to be nominated and you can't nominate yourself. So if you're interested, perhaps talk with someone about nominating you. In addition to the nomination form, there has to be two letters of, sort of testimonials that sort of explain why you're a good candidate and why you for this award. The cash prizes, $5,000 value and a certificate. So it's, it's quite, I think, really important to showcase people that are doing good work because often advocacy is invisible. So this is a way to really make visible some of the work folks are doing behind the scenes.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, there's so many of uh, uh, Folks out there who are just being great advocates, really pushing forth uh, the the cause of increasing accessibility around. So this is one of those uh, a great awards that really takes that moment to kind of shine a light on on the hard work that they're doing. Then,
3: absolutely, yeah.
1: And, and so, in terms for for yourself, like, why? What do you think? Like in what areas would you want to see kind of people get uh, highlighted and, and really celebrated in terms of, of this award for accessibility? Is there any any area that jumps out to you? That, for uh, sure, you know?
3: yes. I mean one that's not on here that I would love to see is student leadership in higher education. Um, we know that NEEDS is doing great work but we know that uh, Citizens with Disabilities Ontario and Canadian Council of Disabilities has done great work in this area as well. I think that it, again like we were talking about advocacy is often so unnoticed. It's an invisible work, and it's also very emotional work um, because it's so personal, right? It's really the personal is political. And so I think that, again, really showcasing what students are doing. There's some great student union groups as well that are doing fabulous work around accessibility. So in terms of another category, I certainly think post-secondary education could be highlighted.
1: Yeah, that's phenomenal. And we'll be sure uh, as well to have that information on our blog at ami.ca slash now, so we can uh, make sure to share that with our audience. Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking time chatting with me. Gonna it was lovely sharing to two, chat with you. Yeah, and, and sharing two great stories and, and information for the folks at home to to learn about them.
3: Well, have a lovely day and good to meet you.
1: Yeah, you too. Elizabeth Moeller is our community reporter in Toronto, Ontario. And so before we uh, head to the break, we'll just share a couple news stories. Starting with... Is- I jumped the gun there again. I'm I'm not used to uh, to always getting the soundbite. But Israel's incoming prime minister Benjamin Netanyahu's corruption trial is uh, will see the country's outgoing prime minister testify. Jordana Miller has the latest.
9: Israel's
3: outgoing prime minister, Yair Lapid, set to testify against the incoming one, Benjamin Netanyahu. The state prosecution updating its witness list to include rival Lapid as it tries Netanyahu on corruption, including charges of fraud, breach of trust, and bribery. Lapid expected to testify on Netanyahu's efforts to change laws for wealthy Israelis returning home, a change allegedly intended to benefit Hollywood producer Arnon Milchan, who gave Netanyahu over $300,000 in illegal gifts. Jordana Miller, ABC News, Jerusalem.
1: And now over to something a bit more interesting. Uh, in in a kind of offbeat news, it's Merriam-Webster has chosen their word of the year, which will be gaslighting. And uh, Peter Sokolowski says that it is a word that's not tied to a single event, but something that's permeated throughout the year.
10: It actually came as a surprise to me and to many of us to see that it was not just a word associated with a single
11: news event, but that it was a word looked up frequently every single day of the year. And that volume pushed this word up to the top. And finally,
1: in Europe, the energy crisis is forcing tough decisions on holiday lights. Karen Chalmers files this report.
5: Excited Parisians count down as Paris's mayor, alongside several celebrities, pushes the button, setting the whole of the famous Champs Elysees alight. However, unlike Christmas is gone, the lights in the French capital this year will turn off over two hours earlier at 11.45pm. Officials throughout Europe are wrestling with a difficult choice. Either they create holiday cheer that may help boost the economy, or they dim the Christmas lights this year in solidarity with their citizens who may be struggling with higher energy bills. In Denmark, they're striving for a happy balance. As the park director of Tivoli Gardens, Casper Schumacher tells the AP, "We are
12: looking at our rides. We are making sure that rides are full before we, we start them up, and uh, then we 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 shut down the lights during night times
5: when been, uh, when we are closed." Karen Chavas, London.
12: Now, coming up after
1: the break, Amy Manty shares her commentary on the Netflix limited series *The Inside Man*. But first, here's reporter Derek Dennis. With tech Trends.
12: From ABC News, Tech Trends. Adobe reports that American consumers spent more than $10 billion on Cyber Monday last year. And as more and more of our shopping moves online, online threats are becoming more sophisticated. Details after this.
0: Expect to see additional phishing emails or sc- uh, you know, scams offering things for bargain discounts that you didn't expect.
12: Tony Anscombe is the chief cyber threat officer at ESET. He says be wary of emails from retailers.
0: In fact, I would recommend not opening emails uh, or links in emails. Just going to the retailer's website and finding the deal that you're, you're looking for or that was in the email.
12: And if possible, check out as a guest.
0: You know, by restricting the storing of your personal information, then you're restricting who might Come and steal it later on.
12: Also, Anscombe recommends using services like Google Pay or Apple Pay.
0: Some of the new payment methods don't actually transmit your credit card data, uh, which is a much more secure way of doing things.
12: With Tech Trends, I'm Derek Dennis, ABC News.
1: Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown. I'm Alex Smythe, filling in for Dave, who's still away on vacation. We're happy to have Amy Amante join us with her commentary on the Netflix limited series, The Inside Man. Amy is also the host of the AMI original podcast called Accessing Art with Amy. And she joins us now from Vancouver. Hey, Amy, how's it going?
4: Hey, good morning, Alex. So
1: you wanted to talk about uh, this miniseries, The Inside Man. What's it all about?
4: Yeah, The Inside Man, four-part miniseries. I actually have to tell you, Alex, I'm really loving miniseries these days. Because you can just binge it and it's good. To, you're good to go, right? Yep. Um, in the inside man, we have a convicted con man who is on, he's not a con man, rather, he's a murderer. He's on death row. And um, he tends to take these cases of other uh, folks who are, um, uh, try, I guess, trying to almost solve things in their lives. So, like a politician might come in and say, something fishy's going on in my family and I don't know what's happening. And so they'll tell this story to Grief, who's our, our lead character, and Grief will sit there and try and sort of uh, navigate the puzzle and say, well, it's obvious this is what's happening, right? So this is kind of what he does to fill his pastime uh, within the context of being a, a prisoner on death row. And then, you know, that doesn't necessarily sound like a drama thriller, but what happens is we start to see the unfolding of characters through this this theatrical container is what we would call it. How something is packaged uh, for presentation.
1: Well, you mentioned characters. So, uh, who's in the cast? Who, who are some of the members that make up this uh, this cast? And, and who were some of the uh, performers that really stood out to you?
4: Yeah. So we've got uh, David Tennant, um, who is uh, playing one of our characters, not in a prison cell, um, and uh, really very well known and well situated actor within the industry and of course we've got Stanley Tucci um, who most people may know who's a North American actor. Um, Devil Wears Prada for example he also has a really great uh, series um, on TV at the moment that is about him touring Italy and trying different foods in different regions of Italy as Stanley Tucci is Italian. (laughs) Uh, So he's also in this and he plays Grief and um, Dolly Wells plays Janice And there's an interesting relationship between uh, uh, Janice and uh, the priest who is played by David Tennant. And so there's this story that's happening uh, while there is this container of grief, our main character trying to figure out this story. And I don't want to give too much away, but it's kind of an interesting look at human beings. But this also means that the characters have to be compelling and have to be interesting. And so from an acting perspective, you know, Stanley Tucci delivers every time. And what's interesting to me about Stanley Tucci is that he often feels very much the same in every character he's done. Um, And and a lot of times, you know, we kind of frown on this because you think an actor is a one trick pony. But actually, if you are very consistent and you don't have to do um, a lot of work that sort of over over-characterizes, uh, you, you're you actually quite a solid performer because you are who you are and you're showing up in the role, um, if that makes sense. So we, we see some actors who um, take on different personas for each character and can do that really well. We have some actors who come into roles who are very much themselves taking on uh, the embodiment of a character. So it's kind of two different approaches to acting. I think what- they all did a really strong job in building relationships between
1: these characters. Well, yeah, exactly. And as you mentioned, it's like, well, this is... You, you still know it's Stanley Tucci doing uh, doing the role and, and, and playing the character, but he's able to naturally still bring himself into the character, which, you know, a lot of actors can't do. They have to lose themselves in, in these different characters, whereas this one, you, you can still see him as being Stanley Tucci, but still being able to play within this role and in this world. So that's really... Really exciting to to hear. Now, in terms of the the cast as an ensemble, how do they they work together? Is it a good mix? Is it a good chemistry between all the different actors?
4: Yeah, there's a really nice a really nice chemistry, and um, for the most part of this series, these folks as characters never actually meet. They do at one instance, um, but for the most part, they have to do their character building without doing scenes uh, together in some cases. So that's also a tricky thing when you think about um, how those relationships happen when you're not, you know, doing a scene where you're face to face with somebody. Um, Again, when we think about our character Grief being uh, on death row, he is confined to a jail cell. He's got a really good friend on the inside who is... um, Uh, also on death row. And so there's a nice character dynamic between those two because they're two very different style of murderers. Um, And and what we get from the other character is um, this like fun-loving, jolly, happy, almost clowny kind of effect. And he's actually murdered 14 women, right? Like it's it's quite an interesting thing to see uh, unfold on a screen in front of you.
1: Now Amy do we do we need to start getting worried about you you, you keep bringing these films uh, <laughs> forward that have a lot of uh, murderers and and things like that and it's weird split personalities are you trying to tell us something here
4: Yeah that's right I um I I think what for me I find Alex that this kind of character building is really interesting. Now, there's no real blood and guts and gory. We don't get to see any of these murders that these this is just part of a backstory, right? By the time we meet these characters, they've been on death row for a while and um, and it's just part of the, the the building of the world, right? So we're not we're not going back to see any um, of their past. It's all about what's happening with the character of the priest and the character of Janice uh, that is paralleling this story within this, again, I, I refer to it as a container. It's a very, it's a word we use a lot in theater and in, in television as kind of the aesthetic for what's happening.
1: Okay, very fair. I'll let you off the hook this time, but maybe next time eh, I may have some more questions. Well, I
4: might have a holiday show coming up next. <laughs> okay. So we're all good there.
1: I, I Hopefully one without murder. But uh, so this this uh, uh, miniseries is described as a thriller drama. Would you say that's an accurate uh, description for the genre?
4: You know what, I I was surprised to see it marketed as a thriller drama. I mean, I don't... Drama, yeah, drama makes sense. But I don't get a lot of thriller out of this. Um, uh, you know, thriller to me and means that my brain is running a mile a minute. Maybe there's car chases and action and there's all sorts of... That's not what kind of film this is. This is a... Or a series this is. This is a, a BBC series. Um, and they're very good at thriller dramas. But this one is a little bit more subdued. It's really... It's really the observation of humans from my perspective. I think that this is a, 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 an interesting way of witnessing human behavior.
1: Well, then potentially is the thriller coming from the content itself, that we are exploring murderers and their perspectives on death row, that that's where you're really taking the thriller and that, that struggle between what does it mean to be good? What does it mean to be evil?
4: I suppose um, when we sort of get deep into the character of Grief, um, I think that's a funny name for a character, Grief. Um, Because when I first heard it, I thought, uh, I heard it in the description and I thought, who's grieving? Who, I don't understand. Uh, But that's the character's name is Grief. And um, uh, when we, the question that is happening, that is unfolding in front of us all through this mechanism of storytelling is anybody any of us can be a murderer. So we've got one, you know, the one character that is a, you know, that I referenced that murdered 14 people. Um, that is like a psychological narcissistic, narcissistic, like, you know, how we classify murder, but the average everyday human who is grief found himself in a situation where a murder took place. And what he is saying and, and what we are watching as a parallel is that, anybody put in the wrong situation at the wrong time can be almost compelled or uh, make a series of wrong decisions that can put you on death row. Um, And as a human, I sit back and I think, oh my gosh, I would never consider that I could be a murderer, but I have never been put in a situation where I've been tested. Um, So that's the interesting dynamic, and maybe that's where the thriller bit comes in.
1: Absolutely. Now, you did mention this is a miniseries. Uh, there, it's a four-part series. Do you do you think that there's going to be more uh, more future iterations and and uh, future uh, parts coming, or is this kind of so self-contained that it's the four four parts and then it's over?
4: Yeah, you know, in all the reading I did, I couldn't find a um, a statement that said, "Oh my gosh, we're going to do more," um, but it does seem to be rather nicely contained. Uh, beginning, middle and end within these four one-hour episodes.
1: Okay, and, and in terms of the uh, description, how was it uh, for this uh, four-part series?
4: Well, you know, my my diversity soapbox uh, is, is something that I like to ride a lot. I think it's so important that uh, folks that um, don't have the privilege of sight, again, we live in a sighted world, have access to knowing what the diversity is on screen. And um, anyway, so uh, the description for me was uh, was very well done. It was well crafted. And um, I think in this one, there's a lot of really interesting choice of sentence structure, which really appealed to me. Sometimes description is a lot of, they do this, they do that, they do this. And we get into more of the, the describing of blocking, which is not important um, because it doesn't really serve the work. And so this uh, has a nice balance of being able to package the description in a way that
9: really serves the story.
1: Well, and I'm sure, too, for for yourself. you 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 want to get more of that rich color as much as you you can. so any any description that doesn't take away from from the actual relevancy to the story can always always help as well. then.
4: Good description is good for everybody, and it almost should be so seamless that it doesn't distract you from the storytelling. And when I know description has missed the mark for me, i'm I'm hung up, and I remember mm. certain things. So now, of course, since I have the privilege of being watching uh, streaming things instead of being in a the theater, um, I can stop, I can pause, I can take a note about something I really liked or really, I thought, doesn't fit with the framework of description. Um, so this one has a really nice sort of flow to it and fits in nicely with the world.
1: And so I, I want to get your final thoughts. How how would you rate this film? Or not this, film, uh, uh, sorry, uh, yeah. short of series.
4: I mean, I suppose it's a film, if you think about it as a four-hour film, I binged it like it was a film. <laughs> um, so I gave it a 9 out of 10. I think there's a lot of really wonderful merits to this. Um, and And I really enjoyed the container and the parallel storytelling and the idea of being able to watch human beings in a situation unfold that's a little bit beyond their control. And what is compelling to everybody as a human being is this series of poor decision making that, you know, that's like that, what do they call that, the tangled web you weave? When you start to go down this this trail of one lie to another lie to another lie, where at the very beginning, if you had just told the truth, you know you you could have avoided this whole thing. But as humans, we tend to try and you know I don't know cover stuff up, even if it's at the beginning a very white innocent lie.
1: Absolutely, you keep digging yourself in a further hole. Amy, That's thank right. you thank you so much for chatting with me today, bringing this uh, miniseries to my attention. I'm definitely going to check it out now. Check it out, Alex. (laughs) That's Amy Amanti with her review of the Netflix limited series Inside Man. We'll be back after the break. You're watching now with Dave Brown. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Mike filling in for Dave Brown one final day. It's Monday, November 28, 2022. Coming up on the second hour of the show, Jim Crisco tells you all about the newly proposed accessibility legislation in Saskatchewan, and Mark Aflalo tells us about the Canadian Pediatric Society's new screen time guidelines for toddlers. But... First, let's head to Mike Ross, who has our AMI regional update.
7: Thank you very much, Alex. We'll begin in British Columbia, and Health Minister Adrian Dix says new measures to, that will make a difference in the lives of people receiving primary care. Dix joined Premier David Eby to EB Eby also says international medical graduates who are not eligible to be fully or provisionally licensed may now be eligible for a new associate physician class of registration with the College of Physicians and Surgeons of BC. The premier says the college is also preparing bylaw changes to allow doctors trained in the United States for three years to practice in community settings in BC, including urgent and primary care centers. Environment Canada has issued special weather statements for much of the South Coast, including Metro Vancouver the Sunshine Coast and Vancouver Island. The weather office said cold Arctic air is expected to flow into the southern interior before moving toward the coast later today, carrying a slight risk of freezing rain in parts of the Fraser Valley. It says the south coast could see some snow tomorrow, but warmer air spurs a transition from snow to rain sometime before Wednesday morning. To the prairies, Alberta Health Services says a heated trailer will open next month beside the emergency department at Alberta Children's Hospital in Calgary as it prepares for surges in patients. AHS calls the additional space a comfort measure to help with crowding and weather conditions and notes it won't be used as a primary treatment area. Health officials said earlier this month that inpatient units in both Alberta Children's and Stollery Children's Hospital in Edmonton were at or over 100% capacity of their normal capacity. AHS says the trailer will be monitored in the same way the emergency department waiting area is monitored. Farmers, rodeo competitors and livestock from across Canada and the United States are traveling to Regina for the Canadian Western Hospital Agribition. The gates to Agribition will fly open today with the first events kicking off at 8am and over 100,000 people are expected to attend the exhibition through this week. Livestock and rodeo manager Shauna Fuchs says teams have been working steadily to transition from last week's Grey Cup to this week's Agribition. Up to 2,000 livestock heads such as bison, cattle, sheep, alpacas and many more animals arrived in the Real District over the weekend ahead of opening day. In Ontario, a coalition of hunger relief organizations says 2022 marked the sixth straight year that food banks in the province saw an increase in users and visits. Feed Ontario says in its most recent annual report that the troubling trend appeared to escalate during the most recent year on record. The report says 587 adults and children visited the province's food banks a total of 4.3 million times between April 1st, 2021 and March 31st, 2022. Fed Ontario says that number represents a 15% spike in the number of people turning to food banks for help and a 42% rise in the number of visits compared to numbers recorded in 2019. And to the Atlantic region, the head of a Newfoundland food nonprofit says holiday appeals for people to donate to their local food banks can be tough to swallow. John Smee of Food First NL says hunger is an income problem that cannot be solved by stocking food bank shelves. He says he encourages people to give what they can, but also hopes they'll write to decision makers and ask them to raise the minimum wage and index income support levels to inflation. Smee says food banks were introduced in the 1980s as a temporary relief measure, and without income increases for those who rely on them, food banks will likely never go away. And finally, 20 businesses have brewed up a new way to encourage people to stop and shop in Central PEI. The businesses from Charlottetown to North Bedeck will be offering a specialty cup of hot chocolate each weekend until December 18th. Jillian O'Halloran, Executive Director of the Central Coastal Tourism Partnership, says some of the beverages will involve scoops of ice cream, while others have peanut butter. She says the organizers hope the Hot Chocolate Trail will become an annual holiday event. And those are your top regional headlines going coast to coast across the country.
1: Thank you very much, Mike. We'll be checking in with you in just a couple minutes to get the weather update. I, I will say, though, that... That hot chocolate trail does sound pretty, pretty perfect around now. Uh, Let's bring in Brock Richardson, who has our sports update. Good morning, Brock. How are you doing on this Monday morning?
10: I'm doing well, and it's uh, been a pleasure working with you over the last seven shows. And uh, yeah, thanks for... uh, being alongside me talking sports for the last seven shows.
1: Brock, you make it easy for me. You know, your your passion shines through. I barely have to contribute to anything. I just let, let mm-hmm. you take the ball and, and roll with it. So uh, first off, you wanted to – there was a ton of sports that happened, a ton of big news, but you wanted to start with the Para Ice Hockey Cup that's uh, currently going on. Can you fill us in?
10: Yes. So this is an event that is uh, annually hosted in Canada. Now when I say annually – of course, they missed a couple of years due to the pandemic, as has everything else. But this particular one is happening in Bridgewater, Nova, Nova Scotia, and the event features Canada, United States, Italy, Czech Republic. And I have the first couple of results for you. But I do want to mention that Canada has not won this event since 2013. They have a mixture of uh, veterans and new rookies, so it's about half and half. And half the team has represented uh, the country in Beijing and the other half is new. So be interesting to see what happens there. But we, need, we definitely need to see a change um, because they haven't won an event uh, like this since uh, 2013. And it's been a long time since they've won the gold medal uh, at the Paralympic Games. So lots of changes are happening amongst Hockey Canada. So the first results I can give you are to tell you that Canada won its first game against Italy, 8-0. And then the United States uh, blanked Czech Republic, 10-0. Now Canada will take on Czech Republic today at 6 p.m. Eastern time. And that game you can go to hockeycanada.ca and it's on their website when the game is on. So check that out because uh, it's a great event and great stuff to be taking place. And the gold medal game will be on TSN next Saturday or this coming Saturday actually.
1: Oh, that's that's great because it's it's one of those things as you and I are both very keenly aware. It's it not oftentimes that these types of uh, para sport competitions really get that that focus, that attention, that highlight uh, when when they are on. So it's great to hear that it's going to be uh, on TSN for folks at home to check it out. And I agree with you, Brock. You know, it's just unfortunate with the Canada's uh, men's uh, para ice hockey team that. They just haven't been able to really break through, beat their their arch rivals, the U.S. and in, in the last number of years. So hopefully, you know, there, there's that new uh, infusion of of youth, talent, and and eager energy to to try and uh, take on the U.S. and and just try to even up the score a little bit as we we uh, gear up for the next year of world championships and things like
10: that. Yeah. Yeah, and the thing I'll say before we move on, and this is no disrespect to any of the other nations at all that have participated in these events, uh, but Team Canada, uh, when they get second place, it, to them it's um, basically like getting uh, last place because the level of competition is not to the same as Canada versus U.S. So when they lose to the United States, they kind of feel as though they've uh, finish last even though it's a second place but that just shows that the the level of competition although it's getting better is not quite up to the level of canada versus united states
1: absolutely and you know can hockey is canada's uh, uh heart and soul sport i mean it in any way shape or form you have it you know uh Canadians are passionate about hockey. They want to win every single time they have hockey. So speaking of another sport that Canadians would really want to win, let's touch on the World Cup and the not-so-great outcome that uh, Canada had yesterday against Croatia. So take it away, Brock. Fill us in on the the sad details.
10: Yes, the sad details (laughs) they are. Um everyone got excited when uh, Alfonso Davies scored the first goal and everyone thought well maybe we will we'll be getting uh, things going and get a win here and then Croatia decided nope we're going to score uh, four unanswered goals after that for a 4-1 victory for Croatia and for me this is such a contrast difference between Belgium and Croatia I thought that if Canada played even of how they played against Belgium, they would have a decent shot. The trouble that I have with what took place is the fact that John Herdman did say, we're going to uh, bleep Croatia, um, bleep up Croatia actually is what was said. And uh, I think this gave a little bit of motivation to Croatia and said, oh yeah, we're going to see. And so I'm not a fan of these comments. I, I, I... didn't like them i understand it was kind of in a huddle and it was kind of one of those things but he did not need to go to the press conference and do that i understand he was trying to inspire his team but you can also inspire the other team to uh to to do their thing and in the post game yesterday he made comments saying well i guess we figured out who effed up who and and the answer was croatia so he he doesn't regret his comments but he said he could have been a little bit more um tasteful in making them so
1: yeah you know i i I'm, I kind of struggle with this. I, I don't want to put it on the comments at all. I, I think that's just the, uh, a narrative that gets picked up because it's the big news. Oh, they're They're calling their shot. Well, you know, if, if they did come away with the win, is it because, you know, Herman made the comments? No, it's because the players on, on the pitch actually delivered. And I think at the end of the day, you have to look at it. This is the number 12 ranked team in the world. Croatia is no slouch. They are one of the best teams in the world they made it to the finals in the previous world cup and lost to France who is one of the most dominant teams out there like yeah we we played well against belgium but we still we still lost and so i think the energy the anticipation maybe you know we people were thinking hey we're we're going to bring something a bit more to uh, croatia like we did with belgium but belgium was also missing their top scorer uh, in Lukaku who who wasn't in, in the game. I mean, I feel that would be very different if he was playing that that game. Whereas Croatia had their full squad. They have some of the best players in the world, especially in that midfield that could just attack uh Kanda which was weak in the, in the middle of the field and a bit towards on that that uh, defense and they really exposed the weaknesses of Kanda. I I saw the uh the the kind of the drive the the compete level uh, especially from Alfonso Davies, who was trying every which way to, to really kind of make something happen. But to me, it felt like he just didn't have anyone there who could really be on his level to help kind of finish off his his setups, his his passes, his his uh, um, his kind of movements with the ball. Where people were kind of hoping that it would be Jonathan David who would really kind of come through and break out this competition. He really unfortunately didn't have anything to to offer. Tejan Buchanan had a lot of speed and skill on the outside, but he wasn't really a finisher. He he was more of another setup man. So I think going forward w- there's a lot of lessons to take away. I I think Canada should be proud of what they were able to accomplish. We were able to score our first ever goal at the World Cup, which is huge. It was a beautiful goal. Alfonso Davies scored it, you know, it, or, and within the first 2 minutes. Phenomenal stuff, but we 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 need to get better. The, these are Veteran European clubs who have had a lot of World Cup experience playing against the best teams in the world. We came through a whole qualifier against some very strong teams, but comparing, you know, CONCACAF to the rest of of Europe is is really hard to do. So, I, I'm I'm hopeful to see a strong finish when they they play Morocco. But again, Morocco beat Belgium. You know, Morocco tied with Croatia. I'm not sure uh, Canada's going to be able to beat Morocco when the time comes around, because they're just as good of a
10: team. Yeah, it's it's tough. And you know what? And I want to say this here too, in that we're building, I believe, for 2026, mm-hmm. where it, we're going to be hosting as part of, you know, a few nations who are hosting. And that's what we're building towards. I think what we ended up getting here this year was sort of, you know, the topping on the cake. I don't think anyone expected necessarily for Canada to do as well as they did in CONCACAF, and they did. And we finally got a representation of the World Cup, and I think that that's going to build towards um, 2026, because I think this team is going to look very similar in four years' time than it does today. Maybe a few tweaks here and there, but I think overall it's going to look very similar, which will only build – for the future, because they've already been there, done that, and they've got the postcard.
1: Absolutely. I, I agree with you, Brock. This was, this was just uh, something that was unexpected, and it was a great surprise, but uh, I think their sights are definitely set on 2026. Brock, so we got to get out of here, but thank you so much for, for chatting sports with me this last little while. It's been a blast. Have fun and enjoy the rest of your day.
10: You as well. Thank you so
1: much. You did a wonderful job. (laughs) Thank you. That's Brock Richardson, who is the host of the Zone on AMI-audio. Now let's head back to Mike Ross, who has our AMI weather
7: update. Thank you, Alex. It's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. and We begin in Corner Brook, Newfoundland. It's cloudy, snow this morning, some rain mixed in there as well. Your high is plus three charlottetown has rained today about 15 to 25 millimeters so uh gonna be a wet one there and the uh, temperature today is seven degrees this morning it'll fall fall to plus two this afternoon let's go to new brunswick and st john next showers risk of a thunderstorm five to ten millimeters of rain in total your temperature falls to plus one today in quebec city periods of rain mixed with some snow. The temperature will be steady around plus two. Toronto has cloudy skies today and a high of plus four. To Sault Saint Marie, Ontario, a mix of sun and cloud and a high of plus one. The wind chill, minus eight this morning. Brandon, Manitoba is next, a mix of sun and cloud and a high of plus one. There is a wind chill this morning, though, of minus eight. Let's go to Regina and a... Uh, Kind of a mixed day there. Some snow, a little bit of rain, and then some clearing skies late in the day. The temperature will be steady near plus two. Lethbridge, Alberta has increasing cloudiness through the day. And the temperature is minus 14 today. The wind chill will be near minus 23. Let's go to Red Deer, Alberta next. Increasing cloudiness and some periods of light snow. The temperature steady near minus 12. The wind chill steady at minus minus. 25. Yukon is next Whitehorse periods of light snow with a high of minus 12 The wind chill near minus 25 Let's go to British Columbia Our final stop Let's go to Kelowna Mainly cloudy today with chance of flurries The temperature minus 3 The wind chill minus 11 And Vancouver as a mix of sun and cloud With the chances of flurries The high there today is plus 4 And that is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada.
1: Thank you so much, Mike. We'll check back in with you for the roundtable discussion a bit later in the show. But coming up next, Marco Flalo tells us about the Canadian Pediatric Society's new screen time guidelines for toddlers. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with A. Brown on AMI-TV. Last week, the Canadian Pediatric Society abandoned a hard and fast rule on time limits for screen use among toddlers and preschoolers. Here to tell us more about it is Mark Aflalo from Double Tap TV, which can be found on AMI-TV Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern. Mark joins us from Montreal. Good morning, Mark. How are you doing? Good. Yourself, Alex? Uh, not too bad. It's Monday, you know, shaking off yeah. a bit of rust, uh, technical <laughs> snafus early in the show, but doing well. We're 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 on to a good stretch in the show, and being able to chat with you is always a delight, Mark. So, um, first off, like, can you tell me a bit about what were some of the previous suggestions that were in place around screen time and toddlers?
11: Well, it was a pretty hard and fast rule. Pediatricians were recommending forever that uh, that kids, that, you know, not infants, because they're saying that under two years old should have no access to screen time unless they're talking to a grandparent or a family re- a relative. But they're saying that uh, toddlers should not have more than two hours of screen time a day. Now, I'll tell you, as a parent going into the pandemic and that first pediatrician appointment right after the pandemic, when that nurse walked in the room and said, so how many hours a day or how much time do your kids spend on uh, screen time? and you'd be like, <clears throat> 12 hours? Um, obviously, you know, that is that is that is one of the reasons that we're having this conversation today, because a lot of things have changed since that original two-hour recommendation.
1: Absolutely, and I, I think it's also, too, it's just the the fact of life that, uh, you know, technology has grown, how how long those rules had been in place before, and, and the the era of the smartphone and technology. So, you know, did the uh, pediatric association give any uh, like rationale for this change?
11: Yeah, obviously, exactly what you were saying in terms of the way the technology has evolved. What they're doing here is they're, is they're really they're encouraging instead of putting a hard and fast time limit on here, they're encouraging the parents prioritize educational interactive, and age-appropriate material. So they're saying that if you're going to be on an iPad, if you're going to be on a tablet of any kind, you should be doing something that's actually educating you, something that's not going to, you know, obviously uh, burden, you know, your, your, your actual life. So basically don't play games. Play games that are educational. Of course, there are exceptions to that rule, such as video chatting with grandparents. And, and they're saying the kids aged two to five should really – restrict any sedentary screen time to one hour a day. So they're saying, if you're going to be on there and you're going to be learning something, then just go at it, keep going at it. But if you're going to start watching, you know, Bob the Builder and, uh, you know, SpongeBob SquarePants, maybe that should be one hour a day. Obviously, they realize that things have changed over the past several years specifically, but it it is just a constantly evolving, you know, direction in terms of what's coming from the Pediatric Society.
1: Absolutely. And I got to tell you, I'm blown away half the time now when I see... Any young child, like under two, three years old, in in just their mastery of things like smartphones oh, yeah. and tablets, it's like they know what they're doing. They know what they're <laughs> doing sometimes better than I know what I'm doing. I mean, I you you could see them with an iPhone. It's like I, I don't even know how to uh, fully manage an iPhone like that. They're, they're hitting settings. They're getting into all these different things. It seems like it's just a, a different world now that it's just kids are – so adapted to
11: technology. They've grown up with it, Alex, right? They've grown up with it. So they've really started and they're like, okay, they see mom and dad. Oh, you're touching a screen. I can do that. And suddenly they realize, oh, it responds to what I'm doing. So it really is a different kind of generational, you know, growth, so to speak.
1: Well, and it's also too, I think it also speaks to the user-friendliness of a lot of these devices now, because like in the early days, you know, it wasn't really user-friendly. You had to figure out how it works, but now it's like, oh, touch screen, bright, uh, high-contrast buttons and colors and things like that, it's designed to make it as simple as possible for for users. So kids just kind of pick up on that very easily.
11: Yeah, I mean, you think back to, you know, days when we had keyboards and and used styluses and didn't use our fingers, and then Steve Jobs said, hey, why aren't we using these, you know, pointing devices that we have built into our, our body, which is our fingers? And now looking back, it seems so archaic that we ever didn't use our hands to just... Naturally, control the devices that we're on. I don't know how many times that I open my MacBook and I try to touch the screen to get it to do something, and it doesn't happen. So it actually has come to the point where if you're not able to interact with something with touch, it seems so archaic.
1: In terms of the the guidelines around uh, this this change in the, in the times, so you you mentioned it's like okay, they they want it to be more focused on educational uh, programming, like so. Is there any other like kind of specifics or, or guidelines or, or um, things that they want parents to kind of be aware of or, or try to uh, gravitate their uh, their child's time towards with the screen? So cameras?
11: what was yeah? So what they're saying is no limits for interactive and engaging forms of screen use, you know, such as educational programs, family movie nights. But they're they're advising parents to do better and focus on reducing passive screen use. So when you're co-viewing with kids, for example, that that's something they don't want you to do. They want you to just get off that screen. And, and I'm gonna quote something from the actual study, which says the best things they can do for their child is to interact with them one-on-one, no kidding, of course, um, if they can. And, and that that's a key word, if they can, because we know that during the pandemic and during lockdowns and and even you know pre-COVID-19 momentum, um, People, I, I hate to say used it as a babysitter, but when you are able to do work and you can focus and your kids are just kind of occupied and not bugging you, you're able to get your job done. So it's a very careful balancing act as a parent to make sure that you're not, exposing your child to too much screen time, something that could hurt them. But at the same time, you have to realize that this is life. People are working from home now. People are still working from home and need to find ways to make sure their kids are engaged. Thankfully, schools are back open, at least for the time being in Ontario, um, uh, but around the rest of the world. So kids are actually at least there engaging with the actual education system.
1: Yeah, that's that's a very good point because it's not just like, yeah. oh, here we'll put this, uh, the screen in front of you. you got... Your, your favorite uh, uh, program playing, you can go and sit there and watch it for a couple hours. You're, you're fine. But it's also key, too, that's like, well, you know, it, it depends on the type of content as well because, you know, you don't want them being like, well, well my FaceTime call with, with uh, grandma and grandpa, eh, it's not educational swipe. Okay, I, my, my limit's done. I don't want to talk to you anymore. No. There's real key uh, defined areas here.
11: Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, we wanna we wanna make sure that they're listen. You know, I remember going to one of uh, my optometrist appointment, and he was saying that there was a key pivot in two thousand and seven, um, where eyes came in more dry, and there were a lot more issues in terms of vision, and that was directly related to the introduction of the iPad and the iPhone. So there are things that we have to do as just responsible humans in society to make sure that our kids aren't uh, you know irrevocably irre- 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 harmed. Um, and this is one of those things that hopefully we can uh, at least put the onus on ourselves to manage that instead of worry about some kind of hard fast rule from the pediatric society that says two hours or we're going to, you know, punish you.
1: Yeah, exactly. Mark, thank you so much for bringing this forward. Before we let you go, let us know what's coming up on the next next episode of Double Tap.
11: We're going to be talking about all about an app called the Clue app, which helps you navigate indoors.
1: Well, Mark, thank you so much uh, uh, for chatting with me. I hope you have a, a wonderful day, and uh, we'll check in with you next time. Thanks, Alex. Okay, that was Mark Aflalo, co-host of Double Tap, and he joined us from Montreal. And you can follow Double Tap on Twitter at Double Tap on Air. Now we have to also uh, make mention that we're we're doing a bunch of different things here on AMI, including uh, the International Day of Persons with Disabilities is coming up on December third. And to recognize today, the Alliance for the Equi- Equi- oh, Equality. Okay, let me try this one more time. To recognize today, the Alliance for the Equality of Blind Canadians. There we go. will be hosting their annual conference virtually. You can join in on the conversation by tuning into a special broadcast of the event on AMI Audio from 1 to 4 p.m. Eastern on December 3rd, which is hosted by Juwita Gupta, who also hosts The Pulse. So. Coming up after the break, we are going to have a roundtable discussion with Mike and Ramya. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. And now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv, we had a bit of a, a different music there. I like it. It's a, changing up the, the style, the sounds a bit on, on the show. It's time now to do our, we, our daily uh, roundtable discussion. So I'm going to welcome in Mike Ross and Ramya Muthun. And I will hand the reins over
7: to Mike, who has our topic for today. Thanks, Alex. So my wife and I uh, always make extra charitable donations around the holiday season. But this year we're doing something a little bit different. So uh, we are adopting uh, families or individuals and taking care of their Christmas lists. So what we've done is as our family, just the two of us, we are getting involved with a seniors group and uh, adopting uh, some seniors and then going out and shopping for the things that these folks have got on their Christmas list. Conversely, my family, uh, my parents, my sister, her husband, the, the whole group of us are also doing the same thing in Ottawa. So my sister's headlining and, and sort of spearheading that for us in Ottawa and getting that all set. So instead of getting gifts for each other, uh, we are going to put that money towards gifts for others. And I also, you know, anytime I walk by a Salvation Army kettle, I I usually make a donation when I'm at the grocery store or a food bank donation while I'm there. And it got me just sort of thinking about charitable donations at the, especially at this time of year. And, um, I want to ask a variety of questions, but first and foremost, I want to know what kind of donations or what kind of charitable project you get involved with. Remy, I'm going to start with you. What do you like to do?
2: Well, around this time of year um, in the community for the blind, low vision community around Toronto and the GTA, there are always fundraisers happening uh, or holiday dinners that people organize. Trailblazers is one that it's, it's top of mind for me right now, Mike, because it was uh, this past weekend. So all kinds of things to take part in to support our communities here. Um, that could be with sports and recreation or other kind of um, groups that are just, you know, not for profit organizations doing their best to bring activities and livelihood and social opportunities to the community. And I really love supporting those. So I attend um, several of these banquets, these dinners, these fundraisers. I take part in like silent auctions and other things um, and all kinds of ways to just like directly be there and support uh, the OBSA, the Ontario's uh, Blind Sports Organization, had one uh, recently as well. So these kind of things are what I 100% clear my schedules for all from like October to December, um, and even, you know, into the new year, because we know that it's a busy time for not-for-profit organizations holding, um, fundraisers.
1: 100%. Alex, what about you? Yeah. So I think I, I've talked about this before, but, uh, me and my family, especially around uh, the holidays, we, we always donate to, to Oxfam. We always, uh, uh, give a contribution there and, Every year for myself, like I always try to do something a bit extra and try to find another organization, another charity to donate to. I think last year it was to uh, the Red Cross, but I, I I always try to mix it up every single year and try to find something, uh, a, a different one that maybe I haven't supported in the past or one that I think is doing something really unique or interesting that I want to get behind. So I, I haven't actually made up my mind for this year. I, I'm I'm probably gonna spend over the next couple of weeks just do some research, see what what organizations are doing, what charities are out there that need support. I, I used to always give to uh the Salvation Army, as you mentioned, uh Mike with the the red kettles. I've I've kinda moved away for that uh just to look at different uh, organizations who are doing different things because salvation's uh, armies are always so present and I, I wanna Find one that maybe doesn't have the same platform that isn't out in in the public as much, and and could be just as uh, uh, worthy of the donation. So, you know, I, I'm I'm open to hear some some uh, suge- suggestions, ideas. You know, any uh, any tips from you guys? I mean, the one you you mentioned, Mike, it, it sounds like it's a, a wonderful cause to to adopt uh, other people's uh, Christmas lists.
7: Yeah, that's what I love about this time of year when you talk about social media. So many people share. Great ideas, and in our in in our case here in in the town that we live in, Ajax, east of Toronto, it's a local real estate company that uh, sort of takes this on. So, you, they sort of work with uh, seniors' homes, and they pair up uh, seniors and 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 folks who want to donate and 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 adopt them for Christmas. And so you go out, you do the shopping, you bring the stuff uh, back, you wrap it up, and then bring it to the real real estate company, and then they coordinate with the seniors home. So, and it's something that I found uh, on Facebook. It was a Facebook posting in one of our local uh, face group uh, chat uh, rooms, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, What about something sort of historically that you may have done that you you just remember really fondly being involved with? Like for me, there's two things. One is I go to uh, something I did a couple of summers ago where I... Collected suits, men's suits, jackets, ties, uh, uh, dress pants, and they were sent up to uh, the territories, different communities where they would be distributed to uh, young men for their uh, proms because they just don't have the access to uh, to a lot of those clothes, those sort of formal type clothes. And I've also seen charities where they collect dresses for uh, for proms as well. So I really enjoyed that. But I think the most fun time I ever had working for charity was in high school when we would do these food drives. And the Friday night at the end of the the week of the food drive, the the social club would get together and it was just like this massive, party, basically, of collecting all the food boxes from around the school, and then divvying everything up into the the different categories, and then reboxing everything. And it was Christmas music playing, and it was pizza dinner, and it was just the camaraderie and and the community uh, around that event, to me, historically, was always something that To this day, I mean, I'm talking 30, 35 years later, something that I still remember so clearly, so vividly and so fondly. I'm wondering if you guys uh, have something sort of historically that you've been involved with that you remember with a lot of fondness. Ramya?
2: Yeah, you're totally sparking memories of similar uh, kinds for me, Mike, because in high school we were part of um, the arm of Rotary International called Interact. And that was how we lived uh, life too, like anyone who was part of Interact was just so fun. I think that it's nice to have this active community of volunteers um, in high school that you can like, you could just feel good about it. You know, you're having a lot of fun. We would, uh, every Thursday would be cupcake day. So we would, uh, whoever, right, like have a rotation of uh, baking cupcakes and then selling it around the school. And we would do, I don't know, bids and like... little fun-spirited things like, okay, the last cupcake is going out for auction now and that kind of thing. And then around Christmas, we would have um, way more things going on for our bake sales. And just throughout the year, this is not just around the holiday season, but throughout the year, every week, at least one day a week, there'd be something super fun going on. And you know it was going towards a good cause, like uh, a family we adopted or um, for community living here in Toronto, some, some kind of dance that we're planning. And that kind of spirit was just big and really really powerful. I still remember it as as that uh today.
1: Alex? Yeah, so there there was a ton of different ones I have been involved with over the years. You know, I I was one up through uh the Cubs, Beavers, Scouts, Venturers. So there was always a lot of community involvement, volunteering uh associated with those programs. But two that really stand out uh to me, one I remember for my first year of university at, at Trent University uh, during our kind of uh, intro week uh, not uh, frost week but uh, it wasn't called uh, frost week anymore and they always wanted to do something uh very big to to raise funds uh, during the week and there's always the passion you know you're you to fresh into university so what we did we were raising uh, money for uh cystic fibrosis and mm-hmm. i remember me and a bunch of uh of people we basically went downtown peterborough We had these big garbage bags and during red lights as one of the major intersections, we would just go right into the crosswalk, start dancing and like uh, just going up to all the cars, collecting money. We collected garbage bags full of money. I, it, it was something I'd never seen before in like a charity space. It's just how effective it was because then we compared afterwards with other people who were just like, you know, stopping people on the streets and, and whatnot. They were going, oh yeah, we we got a a, a bit of money. It, it was a good day. And it's like, oh yeah, here, we got like three garbage bags full of uh, uh, money that we raised. So that was a, a ton of fun and, and uh, a great uh, great cause to, to donate to. And the other one, actually uh, that still stands out and resonates with me is one that I covered when I was in Edmonton for AMI, and it was the Line of Hope, which was uh, organized by a, uh owner of an Indian uh, restaurant, Park Cash, who every single Wednesday, he would uh, create all this um, this food from his restaurant, and he would take it out to right outside where the missions were in downtown Edmonton, and he, he would feed uh, those in need and you know, there was a bunch of different volunteers who would come out and and help, and I I was fortunate to to help with the meal prep and 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 serving the food there. And I just remember it's just like, this is the instant um, you know uh, support that you're giving. You're you're giving people right in front of you uh, a hot, delicious meal for for those who need it. You know, often when you you donate or you support, you're raising funds. You don't always see the the impact right away. This was felt mm-hmm. immediately. And then the other great thing about it was. At his restaurant, it wasn't just, okay, he would go and donate. Anyone could come by at any, any time of day, anytime the restaurant was open, knock on the side door, and he would give you a free meal. And it was just always something that was very ingrained in, in him to give back to those who had helped him. So that was certainly the one that uh, really sticks
7: out in my mind. That's awesome. Well, I'm hoping that, you know, members of our audience uh, who are in a position where they can give uh, this holiday season or at any point through the year might have picked up a few tips, a few ideas there and uh, helping them in making their selections for now or for next year. And I appreciate you guys chiming in on it, too.
1: Yeah, thank you, Mike, for bringing this topic forward. It was a great uh,
7: discussion point.
1: Uh, We'll let you go. But Ramya, before we let you go, let us know what's coming up on today's episode of Kelly and Cal.
2: For sure. So 2 p.m. Eastern Time, we're getting started. Kelly and I are back together today and we're getting the scoop on AMI's Tripping on Air contest. We know it's happening right now, Alex, and we want to find out more uh, about the prizes and how you can get involved with our communication specialist, Greg David. Plus, we're talking to orientation and mobility specialist, Mark Rankin, today. He's sharing his experience working with this tool. It's called the uh, Argus 2 Retinal Implants. And it was a unique experience, he says. So we're going to find out more about that. And we have our Tech Talk with Michael Babcock as we do weekly. He's going to highlight the uh, features, or sorry, it's an app called Menus for All, and we're going to learn more about that.
1: Awesome, Ramya, thank you so much for for chiming in and sharing uh, what folks can expect on the show later. Thanks, Alex. Okay, so coming up next, Jim Crisco tells you all about the newly proposed accessibility legislation in Saskatchewan. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. And we're mixing it up with the music today, and I am here for it. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I am Alex Smythe, filling in for Dave Brown for this final day. Uh, every few days, we connect with AMI staffers from across the country to talk about the latest news from Canada's urban centres, and let's go to our Western Regional Report with Jim Crisco, AMI Content Development Specialist, who joins us from Edmonton. Good morning, Jim. How are you doing?
0: Great, Alex. How are you doing?
1: Uh, not too bad. You know, it's it's Monday. It's, uh, I didn't get the the best sleep last night, but I am glad I can end my Monday morning show <laughs> talking to you. So, Jim, <laughs> first off, uh, the first topic we're talking about is in Saskatchewan, where the province is introducing new accessibility legislation. So can you kind of walk us through some of the highlights from this legislation?
0: Sure, Absolutely. Uh, they they finally uh, decided to, to sort of institute, or, or uh, right now they put the act forward. It hasn't been approved yet, but I think it will. Uh, and what they're looking to do is they want to uh, have legislation to prevent and remove accessibility barriers for persons with disabilities. So uh, some of the highlights are uh, they wanted to ensure that uh, organizations that uh, that are there to help people, persons with disabilities are represented. Um, so they're ro- rolling out an accessib- accessibility plan. And uh, if passed, there's going to be an accessibility advisory committee, which will be appointed, uh, will be at least half of the members being persons with disabilities or from organizations that rep- represent people with disabilities. And they'll advise the government on uh, on future things. There's also... Um, They're going to establish a Saskatchewan Accessibility Office, which will uh, be established to increase public awareness and education for the new Accessibility Act. In addition, this office will be responsible for monitoring compliance and enforcement of the legislation. So they've got a lot of things that are going into, uh, into this, which is really good because... Uh, you know, there's some uh, provinces have already passed such leg- legislation. I know Manitoba has, Ontario. Um, I'm not sure the status of Alberta. Uh, but as as each province comes along and as each par- province comes on board, I, I do believe they're benchmarking off of previous provinces and and seeing what worked, what didn't, what needs to be strengthened. Uh, and, you know, the, the legislation is just getting better and better as it comes out. Uh so this is a great move uh for Saskatchewan. I know that they have a lot of great uh organizations. I work with many of them uh across the province. And I I'm really looking forward to this. I think it'll be a, a really positive impact.
1: Absolutely. One well, I think one of the biggest keys there is the fact that there's the accountability office that's gonna be in there because it's it's one thing that's it's great. You know, you you pass legislation, you 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 set out all these goals and everything like that. But you need to have accountability, someone who's making sure that these, these new uh, like kind of mandates are being met, are being cared for. So it's great that they're, they're introducing that.
0: Absolutely. You know, it is one of those uh, situations where you, you really can't go on the honor system for, for some of it. Mm -hmm. You do have to make sure that there's uh, guidelines in place and there's enforcement in place that, uh, that people are coming on board. Having said that most organizations most companies most people when they're when they actually look at the legislation it, it, it's it's very helpful and it's not the barrier that they think it is to create things that are accessible it it, it really especially if you're starting at the beginning uh, it, it, the, the accessibility is is really um should be built in. It, it, it impacts everyone and, and most people see the value in it. So, uh, but you're absolutely right. It, it's, it, you, you need something that is going to be actually, a, you know, an enforceable rule so that people can get on board.
1: Yeah. Well, and that's something we've, we've talked about so often where it's like, if you start at the beginning, I mean, and, and you, you weave in accessibility, it makes it far easier when it comes to the planning and the execution. And then it's, it's less of a, a issue financially and, uh, you know, logistically when you're trying, then if you're trying to retrofit something after the fact. But uh, where can people go to find out more information about this?
0: Uh, there is a uh, a website. If you go to, uh, Excel, uh, it's accessiblesk.saskatchewan.ca. So accessiblesk.saskatchewan.ca. And there's more uh, information on the proposed legislation, and uh, people can, you know, read up and see see the impact, and and maybe they get maybe get involved. Uh, see if you can if, if you can get appointed uh, onto the oversight committee, and and uh, you know there's a there there will be opportunities to get involved in this.
1: Absolutely, and uh, we'll be sure to have that link on our blog at ami.ca slash now. You also wanted to talk about a sit-ski uh, camp that's uh, happening in Canmore. So what can you tell me a bit about
0: that? Yes, that was just recently in in Canmore. What they had is uh, uh, a sit-ski. It, it, it's sort of a uh, an introduction to the sport for, for folks that might not have, have been able to try it, uh, get a chance of, of doing some... some uh, paraskiing, uh, on the sit ski, um, uh, device specifically to introduce people and to let them see if this is something for them. I I mean, we've, you know, we cover, uh, many, many parasports and, uh, and and there's so many people that want to get involved. And a lot of the parasports are indoors. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, basketball and, and, uh, such, and even hockey is typically played indoors. But for people to be who want to get out and maybe get out on a ski hill, uh, the the sit ski could be an option, and it might be uh, what they want to try. So they they ran this uh, this camp, and it's it, it, you know it was there was sort of two functions of the camp from what I can see. One is uh, an uh, an introduction to new people uh, sit skiers, ones that may not have tried it or had very little experience, wanted to give it a try and see how they liked it, and then the others are for. You know, the, the athletes that are already sit skiing and uh, maybe they have their eyes set on, on the national team, uh, they want to get more competitive. This is a, a chance for s- some evaluation there and some uh, uh, some opportunity to work with the coaches.
1: Absolutely. Now, do you, th- do you think that uh, Kansas' success in the sport has uh, kind of uh, fueled some of the interest that uh, uh, folks have had in sit skiing?
0: I, I absolutely think so. Uh, that we've had, we've meddled uh, in in sit skiing. We've uh, we've got a, a really strong uh, para skiing team, uh, and part of that is the sit ski. Uh, you know, as you know, Alex, uh, you know Calgary has the the the, the legacy uh, training from from the Olympics, from the eighty eight Olympics, and. We just we we just tend to to be very strong in in a lot of the winter sports and skiing is one of them and part of it is we've got a really good development trajectory for these athletes and we've got great coaching um, and great opportunities to you know if you want to excel uh, we the the Canada you know the, the the programs in place in Canada and the different organizations are really built to to help you so I think that this was a, a um, a great opportunity. Uh, you know, there's within the story, it was a CBC story that, uh, that I was looking at regarding this. They interviewed several athletes. Some of them are just there to give it a try and see, see what, what it's all about. And others are, I've got my eyes on, on making the Olympic team, the Paralympic team. And, and, uh, this is part of my, my journey.
1: Yeah. That's, that's always the great thing about these types of, uh, events, these programs. It's like, yeah, you, People, we just want you to come and enjoy it and, and try the sport. But you know, if there is a a real skill or or a passion there, well, maybe there is an opportunity that you can go through the high performance program, and and you may be able to achieve that goal of. Maybe representing your country on an international stage, so that's always such a such a positive. Uh, Jim, before we let you go, I want to give you the chance to kind of chime in on our our daily poll question today. So I I was asking folks like at home, there was a whole story about the Goonies house is up for sale. So I I want to find out from you if you could live in any um, movie house, which one would
0: it be? Uh, does it have to actually exist or just a movie a yeah. house? No, so it has to
1: be a physical house. So, so like my, my, uh, vote would have, uh, was for, uh, the home alone house. That's, uh, in like just in the suburb of Chicago. It's a beautiful, large red brick house. You know, um, there's the, the Goonies house, which is a Victorian style house. People have said, um, the full house, uh, house, uh, Jeff, uh, said the, uh, Bel Air Mansion from Fresh Prince of Bel Air, Are any of those that kind of okay. pique your interest? Well,
0: the actually the one that probably would be is is the house from the Brady Bunch. Mm. Uh, it was just iconic, and they actually did renovate it, so the inside of the house looks exactly like what the the movie set or the show set was. Uh, they did that on on HGTV or something a few years ago. Uh, so that would be the one. I think it's just it's so iconic and it's yeah. so f- from that era. If it was one that doesn't actually exist, but kind of would have would have been the house from the Munsters. Okay. Uh, I think it was like thirteen, thirteen, Mark, Mockingbird Lane. Yeah, that yeah, would have yeah. been the one that I would have picked.
1: <laughs> there you go with with crows and dark clouds and all. Uh, Jim, <laughs> thank you so much for for chatting with me and and wrapping up the show with me today.
0: Thanks, Alex. Have a great week.
1: Yeah, thank you. So Jim Crisco is AMI's regional content development specialist, and he spoke to us from Edmonton. Coming up on Tuesday on Now with Dave Brown. Dave's back from vacation, and accessibility reporter Megan Gilmore recaps the committee hearings on Bill C-22, the Canadian Disability Benefit. That's now with Dave Brown, 9 a.m. Eastern on AMI-tv. And I just want to thank everyone over this past week and a bit for helping me get in, get settled, and make it through while Dave's away. It's been a blast. We'll talk to you tomorrow. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.